Hi, and welcome to Park Life, Episode 10. I'm Michael Croker. I'll let you know a little about our guest shortly. I just wanted to take the time to say thank you for supporting Park Life since its launch in January. I'll soon have details of where you can find me at an official site and reach out. In the meantime, I'm on Instagram at Mike underscore Croker and Twitter at Park Life, the podcast. This was always intended as a limited series designed to capture personal stories of passion and resilience set inside the Australian theme park industry. I'm looking forward to securing a few more fascinating people before we eventually get to the end. So I hope you can stay with me, rate, review and share. This week, I'd like you to meet Dave Anderson. I first met Dave when he was working as a marine mammal trainer with SeaWorld in the 1990s. He has had a truly fascinating theme park life that has taken him across a broad number of key roles across two parks. I began by asking him how his theme park journey started. The end of the 80s, um, I was living in Maroubra Beach. I grew up in Maroubra Beach in Sydney, home of the Bra Boys, and it was a rough upbringing. Um, and I was doing pretty well with, uh, I was a photographer in, in, the, in the photographic industry, doing a lot of surf photography and sports photography and camera repairs. And I just decided, I came up here in September of 89 for a long <coughs> weekend. I sat on the beach with a couple of mates and I felt different. And one of my friends looked at me and he said, what are you thinking? And I said, I've got a really weird feeling. I said, I feel like I'm home. And what does that mean? I said, I don't know. And I went back end of 1989, New Year's Eve, very good, it's the 90s, we all hugged each other and said, wow, new decade, and I turned around and said to my mates, I'm going, and I just wanted a whole new life, um, and I lived, uh, I, I loved, I'd been to the Wit Sundays and stuff like that, but I thought, no, I'm going to the Gold Coast, so I drove up here, I put everything in my car, said goodbye to my family and friends, I knew nobody, I had nowhere to go. Drove by myself to the Gold Coast and I got it to Surfers Paradise. I went to about four or five motels. Some of them were ridiculously expensive. And then I found one and it was pretty reasonable. So I checked in, left a lot of my stuff downstairs in the car and that was it. I was on the Gold Coast. I went for a run that afternoon on the beach and just felt like I was home. What was the plan when you got here in the, terms of work? To continue on the photography business. Right. So I've had all my gear with me. And the Gold Coast is the surfing capital of Australia, um, so it was understandable that I'd do pretty well up here. Um, not long after that, it's where just fate and, and going with being blessed and going with luck and, and, and following a dream or following a direction or an idea came into play. When I was watching TV one morning, and it was Good Morning Australia, uh, which was like the Today Show, and they interviewed a couple of the dolphin trainers on the show. And I said to a friend, that's got to be the best job in Australia. And he said, well, why don't you go and get it? We were, we, we were of this belief we could do anything, which was, it's still to this day, I still think sometimes like that. Mm. And uh, I rode my push bike. I wrote a letter, hand wrote a letter, rode my push bike up here, handed in at reception that I would sell popcorn or balloons, but I wanted to be a dolphin trainer. At SeaWorld? At SeaWorld. And how old were you here? 25. 25, okay. Yeah. And um, when I got home, the phone was ringing and they wanted me to come back for an interview. And I met Anne-Marie O'Neill and... Um, she was head of human resources? Human resources. Yeah. Asked me to come to the induction and I was in operations. So I sat there on the first day just going, wow, this is how incredible. And, and my goal from 
as soon as I got here was to work with the animals. So if, if we can just go back a bit, you, you make yourself known to SeaWorld, you get a call to come in and then you're successful in getting a job in operations, is yes. that right? Yep. But you'd applied for a marine mammal trainer? No, no, I, well, in my letter I said I'll do anything. <coughs> right. I'll sell popcorn or balloons, not even knowing they didn't yeah. sell balloons here yeah. in the park. But I said that, but my goal is that. Yeah. So on induction day, when all of the managers came down and spoke, and the manager of, of Marine Mammal Division came down and spoke, and I targeted him straight after yeah. it. I went straight up to him and said, I'm going to work for you one day. And he oh, okay, yeah. I, that's what I'm here for. And uh, it was good, it was three months later, I was permanently in as a Marine Mammal Trainer, because not long after I started in operations, I made myself known, a lot of stories of how this happened, but I got known by the marine mammal trainers, and I'd go down after I'd finished closing a ride, I'd go down and say, can I help with anything? Can I help you clean the buckets? Can I help last week? Yeah, and got to know them. So then on a day off, I thought, I'm off tomorrow. I have no family and friends up here. Can I come in and help work for the day? So it kick-started the old volunteer program. That's mm. what started it. Mm. I had to ask the manager, who I went and saw, and he said, well, I can't pay you. I said, I'm not asking for pay. I just want to do it for the experience and learn. So I dedicated myself. I was having no days off. I was here seven days a week and after work till six, helping feed and clean and asking questions. So when through a chain of events, a position came that needed urgent filling, they didn't fill it straight away because it was like, well, we'll just see. And it left me. A few days later, I was offered the position. I dived on it. That I period of volunteering to that moment when that happened how long are we talking three months three months three months well wow. later I've, I've gone from operating the rides to to learning the shows learning how to train the welfare of the animals having relationships with animals and starting friendships with them and 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 just the bond that you have with an animal that you love and and coming to work every day it was surreal and mm. telling family and friends over the phone that this is what I'm doing now. I'm, I'm mm. a dolphin and sea lion. And why we had three whales, false killer whales. Mm. Um, I'm working with these incredible animals. Mm. So family and friends would come up to visit and there I am on stage or in the water with dolphins jumping over my head. And it was fantastic, just surreal. That was a, a different era, obviously. And there was obviously a culture there of sharing information and mentorship. Mm -hmm. Did you have, obviously you had mentorship around you at that time? I, I got on well, and I still, to this day, I, I try to avoid any negative relationships with anybody. I get on well with everybody. So I got on well with everybody. I um, was boisterous and fun and positive, always try and be positive, and asked a lot of questions. So uh, one of the trainers picked up on that and took me under his wing, and he was the head of the sea lines. Um, <coughs> And he was fantastic. He thought, okay, and he emptied his head of everything he knew about training and welfare and caring for animals and creating a relationship with them that is the bond that, that really makes them trust you and, and you trust them. And it's just incredible. It's a beautiful, mm. beautiful workplace. I know who sun. we're talking about there. We should maybe talk about Rod West, Rod right? West. Rod He's Florida the, West. Yeah, Rod Florida West. Now, he'd been... A marine mammal trainer for most of his life. He'd worked yeah. with with animals, uh, marine creatures in particular, and it was a was a great character unto himself. If you had to kind of sum up for people that don't know, what what was maybe the single greatest teaching he gave you about the the art 
of working with animals and the, the psychology around that. Was there a way you could kind of sum up the learning that that man gave you? Two things instantly came to mind, so I guess I'm going to go with them straight away and not, not dive and find something too prophetic, but not to take it too seriously. He was, enjoy it, let's do this, don't, don't take yourself too seriously yeah. in your role. And the relationship, he, how he used to talk to every animal he worked with. First thing in the morning, he'd walk in, hey, and he'd have nicknames for them all. So I'd have to learn their name. Then he's talk, calling an animal. I'm going, who's he talking to? That's the animal's nickname. So he'd have nicknames for them. And uh, just he never stopped talking to them all the time. But he'd do it with every animal. Walking through the park, there used to be big water dragons here, a lot of lizards and stuff. And he'd stop. They'd be, hey, what are you doing? He'd start talking to them. And, yeah. and I'd do that now to this day with pelicans. Yeah. i stop and go, what are you looking at, you big, beautiful bird? And yeah. I'd do it with seagulls. And, and that was his thing. He just talked yeah. to animals. And it was, he was inspiring. He was yeah. absolutely an inspiring guy because he loved what he did. He was a fun guy. He identified that each of the animals had their own character and personality, didn't Absolutely. He? And that you had to pay attention to that before anything else. Absolutely. Understand just, the nature of that particular yeah. animal's personality. Yeah. And when you're working with it, have a have a, an empathy to that and an, and an awareness of that. Mm. And to um, look at it from the animal's point of view. Mm. So when you're training an animal and you can see the animal, or it, husbandry behaviors, which was so important and, and which I really got into at the time, um, and that's the health behaviors that, that help to look after and care for an animal. Simple things like tooth checks and things like that. You can, and he would, he taught me to look at it from the, what the animal is trying to figure out what I'm trying to get it to do. So make it as simple as I can for the animal and, and just be patient and show, and it would, it would work. It would work every time. I loved that, those breakthroughs with animals just through trust and, and a common bond. Mm. You know, they, they wanted to work with me and I wanted to work with them and it was mm. just an incredible, beautiful time in my life. That's a lesson in empathy too, isn't it? About demonstrate empathy toward the animal. And then if you have empathy going on, you'll bring that to people too. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially and the and the two lots of people that you do work with. There there are your workmates and there are the most important people, which I've learnt through both parks where I've worked, and that is the guest, the crowd. That that colourful sea of faces that come in every day and smile and laugh and clap and cheer and then leave and tell their friend. You, you've got to relate to them. And, and I still do to this day with the job that I'm in now. Stop, where are you guys from? Hey, you kids having a good time? I love that engagement as well because it reminds me of what I do. The marine mammal trainers, even to this day, have got a challenging job there because not only is there the whole aspect of animal welfare management, animal husbandry, the, the, the training and the development and the care that goes into each uh, of, the, of the animals. But then the, also the burden to then have to be a communicator, to have to be able to facilitate sessions with students and be involved in education programs and marine research and articulate that world. Then also on top of that, be on stage, mm. be present, mm. understand the, the use of the body and sometimes the use of the voice. There's a lot going on a lot of uh, demand. How did you find the transition into not only just working with the animals, but then being in the water with them, with an audience, and then being on stage and presenting? And I know we're getting well away before you've even got a microphone in your hand, but just the very fact that you're on stage working with the animals. How did you find that before an audience? I had already pictured it in my head that I was going to do that. So my first day 
we saw a show and I looked and went, I'm going to be on that stage and I'm going to do that show one day. So when it did happen, I, I don't even remember going, wow, this is it, <coughs> this is incredible. I just, I knew I was going to be there. So I was happy, I was really happy, I'm finally doing it. And I'd worked with the animals for training. We did a few rehearsals and stuff like that. And it was showtime, it just became a natural thing to flow into and I absolutely loved it. Were there obstacles here for you, even self-imposed psychological obstacles? Why do you think, and I think for people listening too, you're still a relatively young man and there's a free spirit there and there's a, there's a fearlessness in backing yourself and stepping out. In the absence of opportunity, you're creating opportunity instinctively. You know, you said to the head of marine mammals on that day of orientation, one day I'm going to be working for you, so you're almost foreshadowing an outcome. Mm. No one's in your corner prompting you for that. Where does that, and where did that come from, do you think? And how do you think people find that? Yeah, I understand that, that there, there is a border with um, confidence extreme confidence and some people might that might flow over into a type of arrogance and understanding that and knowing that I, I never tried to come off as arrogant but I, I just was a confident person I knew saying to the head of the marine mammal division that I'm going to work for you one day I knew I'm another person saying that I knew he probably hears it every week I want to work for you I want to work for you but the way I just said it and looked at him and I I'm really am that it was, it was a goal that when I get my eye on something, if I, and I'm still to this day, if I really want something, I will focus on that, mentally focus, meditate on it, believe it, see it, picture it, and that's where my energy goes mm. into into doing that and fulfilling a dream. What was around you as a young man that reinforced that way of seeing yourself in the world? Were you reading things? Were you around different? Yeah, I read a great book by Richard Bach called Illusions. Um, and it was just a book about confidence and things like that. But even the fact that I left friends and family, everybody I knew in Sydney, to come here by myself, drove all the way up, talking to myself on the way, listening to cassettes in the car and that. But just Cassettes? Cassettes. What are these things you speak of? It's just like you, you might remember the wireless. The wireless. What what is this thing? This magical thing technology. you speak of? It's technology. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. And um, but I, I was just confident, knowing it felt right. Yeah. I had to get out of Sydney. Sydney was okay. I didn't want to. Twenty five years of age. I thought, okay, I don't want to stay. That was. I just couldn't see myself there. It just wasn't right. This felt like home for some reason. And that was it. I followed that feeling mm. and belief. So mm. I was confident it was the right thing to do. And I was confident that I'm on the path that I'm meant to be on. Mm. So I'm chasing, the dream was to go to the Gold Coast. Got to the Gold Coast. The dream was to be a marine mammal trainer. Step at a time, step at a time. Mm. But it was just the path that subconsciously or whatever, I, my destiny was, was fulfilled. Mm. Yeah. It was great. And you're actively willing it and then working, I guess, working with the universe too, mm. working with opportunity. Mm. Was there a particular animal, whether it be a, a dolphin or a seal or a sea lion that you formed a particular bond with? You know, we talked earlier about Rod West talking about relationships. Two. Okay. Can we talk really quickly about that? Really quickly. Yeah. Um, the, on the wall behind you there, Michael's a giant big 
poster frame three dolphins. It's Slim, Delbert and Cyrus. You know who they are? Yeah, Cyrus is, wow. I met Cyrus the other day. He's, we should just mention, we're sitting in a, in a room in the SeaWorld administration building and there is a, a large print behind me. Massive. As far as I was aware, it's three dolphins. That's Slim, Delbert and Cyrus. But you see personalities up Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Wow. Slim was um, an incredible animal, absolutely incredible. Wow. Cyrus is still here, he's up the back. I met him the other week. And that in itself, meeting an animal that I'd worked with years ago was yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Um, Slim was incredible to work with. And they were just so keen to learn. The same as a, a Californian sea lion that I loved called Kahia. He was incredible to work with, so trusting. And I used to spend my lunch break, I'd have a, a like a, a sun lounge in the sea area. And I'd take it in there with a book and eat my lunch. People would go to the canteen and come back from lunch and I'm sunbaking with these seals, sea lions, all laying, some of them laying on top of me and all laying around me, just looking at me while I'm reading. I'd read to them sometimes and they'd just yeah. kind of breathe and look at me and, and I'd be patting them and it was just, the relationships were fantastic, yeah. absolutely fantastic. Yeah. How do you move from out of that space and then you transition into, correct me if I'm wrong, is it from there that you, you transition into show announcing so now yep. it's up front on mic which i know you'd done some of working in the marine mammal camp but now it's solely committed to being on stage and being the voice that's carrying the content mm -hmm. so whether it's a, a ski a show whether it's a marine mammal presentation now you're up front on mic mm -hmm. what what motivated that transition for you i've reflected on it and Announcing professionally and performing on the microphone was appealing for a few reasons, but the one was the turning point was when I was a dolphin trainer and I used to work up at the back of SeaWorld, which is now the main stadium. It was a place called Dolphin Cove, which had a little hut, a research hut. We used to do a lot of husbandry behaviors with the animals, a lot of um, meet and greets with people and tours and stuff. And it was also used for filming it was a filming area for if there was any television shows. And there was a television show called Paradise Beach being filmed there. And I worked every day in that area, so when they were... We're talking about the early to mid-90s when there was a boom of new local content being shot mm. on the Gold Coast. Mission Impossible was here, getting yeah. a reboot as a series. Yep. Uh, Paradise Beach. Yep. I was Flipper was before that. Flipper you know, was before that. Flipper. Um, and I got on really well with the, the crew and the cast, and I was just there every day, me and two other, and I used to make them laugh and everything. And they wrote a character for me right. to have lines. So I'm, I was lucky, probably one of the only people in the industry to ever enter the industry with by a invitation. Role. Yeah, by invitation. As cast. Yeah. I played Fred the Dolphin Trainer. I had a few silly lines. And at the end of filming for that day, <laughs> The director came up to me and said, have you ever thought of doing this as, as a career? And I said, no, I hadn't. He said, well, you should really think about it. You take direction exceptionally well and you do this. And I went, okay. And that planted a little seed in my head. So I thought about it and thought about it and got an agent. And then I thought I need to learn to speak properly with, through a vocal coach, through announcing here. I got some great training and I realized that that was an, another step away from the animals now, which, which I missed at the time, yeah. but I have no regrets for because every single step took me into most incredible experiences yeah. that are just people would dream to have. Yeah. And um, I've, I've been blessed to have some of those experiences. So you got yourself an agent and we 
without dovetailing too far away from where we are, because I know there's a whole other sidebar here because there was work in television and yeah. and uh, you've had had a run in, in that game as well. But uh, how did you find that experience being up front and centre, particularly when you're doing something like a ski production back in the day, that arena open air would comfortably fit about 2,500 people in the mm-hmm. stadium and once you filled at capacity you could probably squeeze maybe three and a half thousand there. Mm-hmm. And if you're doing a 20 minute water ski show, there's only one voice at that time and it's you. Yeah. And for 20 minutes, you could be running on your wits. Boats could sometimes run out of fuel or a skier would fall and there is no script. It's just the power of personality. But how did you find that? Because that's a whole other world. Yeah. Well, to be completely honest, there was a a younger fella here in the park by the name of Michael Croker. No. Yeah. He used to do the, announce the shows and I used to watch you. Right. And I used to think, he's good, he's good. Stop but it. I used to think, I could do this. What? I could do this. And so I'd, I'd watch you, I'd watch the other announcers do it. I had it when I used to do, when I, when I did work with the SEALs in particular, we'd still have microphones. So we were a trainer, but on microphone. And to dance around when a SEAL didn't quite understand what was going on, that ad lib. Yes. The adrenaline, the ad lib, and the improv yes. was fantastic. So, to move into that, I remember doing my very first ski show. You do? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was pouring rain one afternoon, and one of the announcers, you weren't here, one of the announcers said, Oh, you go and do it, you'll be right. Okay. So, I went and did it, and uh, I had a ball. I had an absolute ball. Couldn't remember the skiers' names, so I made up all their names. <laughs> but um, I had a ball doing it, and, and that was it. I started. Probably the most hardest thing for me was to remember the skiers' names. Yeah. But I loved it. I loved every ski show I did. It was, it was fantastic. How yeah. long did you spend as a show announcer at SeaWorld? How many years was it? One year. It was just the one year? Yeah. It always feels longer to me. Yeah, one year. Okay. You find your way across to Warner Brothers Movie World. Yes. Let's just, <laughs> let's just try and understand how that happens and what motivates you. You, you end up in that park. You've obviously auditioned successfully for a, a role. Is that how it began? No, no, I, um, I, I found myself wanting to, to return to that environment. And I went and visited uh, Movie World one day and watched the shows. And my wife at the time, she turned to me and said, I know what you're thinking. And I said, what? And she said, you're thinking you can do a better job than that. And I said, no. she said, well, why don't you try? So I applied for, again for operations got into operations, uh, the rides over at Movie World, and within three months they were auditioning for a role in the Police Academy stunt show. And I thought I was going to go to the Western show, that was my thing, but I thought I'll, I'll apply for that. And I had to write an audition piece, which I wrote my own piece and um, presented it. And the manager of show and entertainment at the time came and saw me that afternoon and, and, and shook my hand. and. Next minute I'm doing, three months later, I'm in the Police Academy stunt show, doing, again, completely different, very, very high high risk and calculated movements. We should just talk about that for a minute. For people that don't know, the Police Academy stunt show, when it came along in Australia at Warner Brothers Movie World, was completely singular. There was no other show in the country like it. Mm. And it became a breeding ground and a training ground for a whole generation of industry talent. Absolutely. Not only actors, but specifically stuntmen stunt and women yeah, yeah. who are still working in the industry to this day. <laughs> mm-hmm. And 
then we also had some really fine former uh, television actors that migrated across into, into the show for a while as well. So it was a singular breeding ground and showcase of a very specialised core group of people. Mm. So you find yourself amongst that crowd and you're also then on top of that working with a brand that's got its own expectations around quality control because you're mm -hmm. effectively bringing characters that are Warner Brothers uh, sanctioned alive. Mm -hmm. So we've got you know, Captain Harris as uh, one of the key leads yep. and Commandant Lassard. All the characters are drawn out of the film franchise, of course, so it's important that the performances are on point. So it's not just getting on a mic. Mm -hmm. It's really about playing character, recognised characters. Mm -hmm. You're walking into accents your... as well. Absolutely, the accents were so key. Lassard's accent has to be Boston. Had to be Boston. Had to learn the Boston accent. Yeah, uh, Captain Harris had a bit of a twang to it, a bit of a Southern twang, but he was a Californian ac uh, accent. Did you walk so, into that gig a little bit daunted, knowing you knew what you were walking into mm. and the crowd of people around you, mm. and you knew your roots and where you'd come from? Was there any shadow of doubt in your head, or are you still? I just wanted to be good at what I did. Um, I wanted to make the crowd happy because the, making the crowd happy at the Police Academy stunt show is one of the greatest memories of my life. And I did this for 10 years. Yeah. And that was a stadium that held 1,500 people. So the thrill at the end of the show, even during the show, knowing that you've got 1,500 people hanging on your every word. What's he going to say next? What's he going to do next? Because the role of Captain Harris had a lot of improv walking around the crowd before the action started picking out some volunteer well, people out of the crowd, you could get anything. You had to bounce off you. It was so thrilling. And um, selling the show, uh, selling the stunts, and at the end of the show, just having this incredible you know, round of applause. And it was, it was just fantastic knowing that I entertained those people. So I just wanted to be the best at it. And I even said to the cast, who's the best Captain Harris? And they'd say that, so I'd watch that person. And I'd ask them questions. Right. And, and um, the funny thing was, the, the, the one that was the best, Captain Harris, I said, do you constantly try to improve each show? He said, I used to, I don't anymore. I've reached a peak and I know with it. And I thought, wow, okay, I'll never be like that. I'll never reach that peak. No, 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 I want to constantly improve, improve, improve. So I ended up doing that for 10 years and it was... Fantastic. I imagine the fact that you weren't content to stay at the peak of the mountain keeps you wanting to go for 10 years. Mm. Because if, if you've reached the peak, after you've enjoyed the view for a little while, it's time to climb back down, right? Yeah. But you obviously kept yourself stimulated by knowing that there's always growth. I loved it. I loved it. And I, I used to say, I'd, eventually I became the supervisor of the show, and I'd remind <laughs> the cast pre-show. Um, and I'd say, honestly... I've seen you do a show when you've got friends and family in the audience and you lift a little bit for that, which is normal and natural. I do myself when my family was in. I'd, and then I realised why. Those people pay my wage and I would pick, I'd look before, I'd pick a family, pick right. a, a dad and a little kid and, and go, I'm doing this for you. I'm yeah. doing this for you. So I'd say, just always imagine that your family and friends are in the audience because they're your best friends of the guests. And um, that was the goal, just to, if they were happy and left and, and, and had a ball, great, great. And to be recognised outside as well with my family shopping. Uh, really? Often, yeah, I'd, absolutely. I'd be shopping wow. at Woolworths at Runaway <laughs> Bay. hilarious. Families would come up and go, you're that guy, aren't you? And I'd be looking going, uh, 
you're the Captain Harris guy. And I, yeah, did you have a good time? And my wife would roll her eyes. And it used to happen a lot because the coast is, you know, you'd be shopping somewhere and people would go, you're the, that guy. Yeah. So when you do it for 10 years, yeah, people remember you. <laughs> there was ever no, no moments of doubt about uh, that, I guess. I'm curious to understand if there were obstacles and, and if there were, how did you push through them? Because we thought, you mentioned before, you've got to specifically get an accent down and understand that character. Did you have um, obstacles there? Because these are all crafts that are completely unique to themselves. They're not complementary crafts. Not many people make the transition out of surf photography mm. to end up learning unique American accents and tones to stand on stage and perform. Where was that learning coming from? Was it, did, it ever, did you ever have to push through doubt or fear? Doubt or fear? I, it feels terrible to say I can't remember it, pushing through doubt or fear, because I, that was what I wanted to do. Right. I wanted to do that, and, and I was like a sponge. Yeah. And from a young age, I always, I, I had a love of, from a young age, I had a love of adventure, especially as a teenager. And I'd read books about Errol Flynn and, and the old seafaring ways and adventure and, and, and discovery of the world. And I just wanted a life like that. Yeah. But it, it, it did become the outside world, but it was more in my head. Yeah. How far I could push, how could I drive myself to do that? And, and again, I keep saying the word blessed. I, am, I think I'm one of a few people in the theme park industry here in Australia, specifically on the Gold Coast, who have been fortunate and blessed and lucky enough to have experienced the best of these worlds. Mm. To be in a pool with dolphins jumping over my head every day and waving at the crowd and smiling and getting the whole crowd's taking photos and they go back over again and you, and then to, to perform to 1,500 people who are uh, laughing their heads off and watching mm. these incredible stunts. and well, Sitting and on a lilo and reading the sea lines. Reading the sea lines. Like, yeah. it's just, it's, it's, yeah. I, I look back on memories and, and think, wow, how lucky am I that I can, I've got all these incredible moments. And so grateful and thankful for the, for the park for giving me this. I had no idea. Imagine driving up in 89, end of 89 or 1990. Someone telling me, you're going to go up here and this is going to happen to you, this is going to happen. Yeah, well, you're kidding. Mm. That wouldn't happen to anybody. I know that there are people around the world who dream to do one of those things. And I'm just so lucky. I look at guests today when I'm here in the park that are, and I've talked to the dolphin trainers after they finish doing a, a tour with, with a Meet the Dolphin tour or whatever. And, and I look at the, the faces of the guests. Specifically, one comes to mind, a, a, an older lady. When the tour was over, she thanked the trainer and she left. And I reminded the trainer, I said, I watched her and I imagine her whole life, her dream has been to get a photo with a dolphin, to pat a dolphin, to share a moment with a dolphin. And she was doing it. This was her moment. This was her bucket list. And the trainer was concentrating on what she does every day, which is normal. I said, you've just helped change that person's life. You've helped improve it. Those photos will go around the world to family and friends and on her fridge. That's her bucket list that's ticked off. And her, I could see it on her face how powerful that moment was for her. So it was good to remind the trainer as well. Um, and I, I just think, oh, man, I've worked in other jobs and told people what I've done for a living mm. and what I, what I used to do. And I get the same thing all the time. Why, why aren't you still doing it? No. Each thing led to a new thing. Mm. And the, the dolphin training to announcing announcing to, to speaking roles in film and television 
and acting to the police academy stunt show to learning that to more roles while I was doing that in in that and being cast in television shows. Can we just jump into that for a minute? So the, the film and television stuff is obviously happening as tandem with police academy, right? Yeah, yes. And you're in a fraternity there where there's working actors and, and stunt people, as we mentioned. What were some of the gigs that you got alongside all of that that stick in your memory? I know there was a television series. A couple of television series. There's one I was contracted to the BBC for a television series called Jeopardy, and it was the third season of Jeopardy, and it was um, these, these school students from Scotland who had come to Australia because of UFO activity. And so they were chasing UFOs. It was groundbreaking at the time because each actor had their own handheld video camera. Ah. So they'd be talking and filming it and they'd piece together on top of the, the cruise stuff what they were filming. So you'd see it all of a sudden. It was good, but it was very confusing. My, my, I watched it with my kids and they said, we're not sure what's going on. And I said, I read the script and I'm not sure either. But I had a, a head role in that. It was really, yeah, really good. I was yeah. paid in pounds as well, British wow. pounds. Um, and then I got another one with, uh, I was contracted to Channel 9 for a kids television show called Mortified. Mm. It's on Netflix now. Um, and I had a regular cast role in that. I played one of the younger characters' father. A very funny, some of my, again, some of the most incredible moments. Tell us about that character quickly, because I, I think very it's worth quickly, yeah. touching on. He, I got the whole bio of him, and he had just gotten out of prison. He'd been an ex-boxer, so he was a bit punch drunk. And he'd, <laughs> while he was still in prison, he'd wrote, he'd written a, um, a book of his own poetry, yeah. and he thought he was going to shake the world with this thing. So I went to the audition and everybody at the audition looked like they just got out of prison. Right. And I thought, oh, okay. These are the other actors going to cast. The other people going yeah. for, for the audition. You and know, you're I quietly thought. measuring yourself against them, right? And I, I actually dived down, I drove down in between shows. So I've gone from being right. Captain Harris, yeah. a police officer, to now jumping in the role of a guy that just got out of prison. Right. So I just said to them, look, I've got two ideas for this character. I'd like to do both if I could for you. And they let me do my bits. And then I started talking about just jumping way, way back in my past. I, I did work at Long Bay Jail in Sydney for a little while in the clerical department, and I got to meet some actual real prisoners. Right. So I started telling stories about these prisoners that I'd worked with, and they'd come and ask you something, where's the, and you'd be looking at them and thinking, are they looking at, they kind of look through you. Yeah. And I'm telling this story, as I'm telling the story, I saw the woman reach up and press record again on the camera. So I kept telling stories. And I probably went 10 minutes over my audition time. But I knew something happened there. And it ended up getting the role. And he was hilarious. He was, I played this guy. This guy was a complete idiot. Um, he had his quirks and the way he spoke. His was really, yeah. yeah. And so I immersed myself in him. It was fun to be. Did they let you have the space to carve him out and make those yes. choices? Yeah. Right. Episode 17 was called Trivia Night. Yeah. And... Uh, they let me take over. There was a lot of improv that night. We, right. we shot till three o'clock in the morning for the actual trivia night. And the next day we had to go back and film a prior scene at Palm Beach. This is probably the best compliment I ever had as an actor. I was in hair and makeup the next day very early and the hair and makeup ladies were saying, you were hilarious last night. And I said, oh, okay. No, the security guard came and got us, got the catering people and everything as they were packing up, said, you've got to come and see this guy. So we were hiding behind the monitors watching you and the director, the assistant director kept telling us to shut up because we kept laughing. And I was just being an absolute fool. You'll see it if you ever watch the thing. And they let me run with it. The yeah. kids in the show were laughing. They started copying me. So we had this real, it was just, it was fantastic to do. Right. 
and I was doing some ridiculous dancing and being an absolute goose, but it was so much fun. He was a great character. Yeah. yeah. You said to me years ago that, and I've, I've always remembered, I've, I've used it since with people because I think it's, it's terrific. And you talked about this idea that my life is my movie. Uh, yes. And I don't want to tell you what you told me. I might get you to, to stay on it. But uh, it's true. a lot of people, even unconsciously, can be passengers in their own lives. Mm. They're kind of in the passenger seat. And uh, rather than getting behind the wheel. And, that, and getting behind the wheel doesn't mean it's always easy. You know, there's going to be rough terrain and it's not, not always going to have a map. But um, sometimes it's easier to sit in the passenger seat and just re be reacting to things rather yep. than uh, forging ahead. So rather than me retell that, maybe you could retell it the way that I heard it from you because I've adopted it and I think there's a lot of truth in it. This idea that my life is my movie and I think listening Correct. to everything you've talked about up to this point backs up that idea in your actions. Hmm. What does that mean? My life is my movie. How would you describe that to someone? There's nothing wrong with sitting in the passenger <coughs> seat and I do it a lot myself sometimes just to take a break. But hmm. your I do believe your life is a movie and you are the director. You... Life throws things at you. You can't write joy and happiness nonstop because no. there are events in life that will, will come to you and test you and, and, and make you sad and make you upset. That, that is life. You've got to understand that. But as far as your life goes, you're the, you're the location manager. You can decide where you want to, even if it's a weekend. Today's episode, <laughs> I want it to be on the Sunshine Coast. I'm, we're going for a drive to the Sunshine Coast. I want to go. Or... Today's episode is going to be about housework and we're going to put on some cool music though and we're going to crank it and we're going to do that. So you're the location manager. You can choose drama. Some people love drama. Some people love horror movies. Some people love comedies. I love comedies. Um, so I try and always make a conscious effort mm. to be aware of what's going on in my life and everything around me. And if I don't like it, can I control it? No, I can't control it. No effort needed. And waste of time trying to control. Can I? Yes, I can. People walk in and out of your life. You decide whether they'll be an extra, whether they're going to speak in your life. This person's interesting. I'm going to give this person... The, so you give them more time in your life. I'm going to make you a regular cast member. I'm going to make you... I'm going to make you a love interest. Mm. I'm going, oh, yeah, mm. yeah, no, things aren't working mm. out between us. We're a bit different. I'm going to start writing you out of the series. I remember you saying to me, the movie, if it's just one note, is going to be dull really quick. So if it's just funny, and it's going to be a long movie, I hope, if it's just about laughs without substance, that's going to grow thin really quick. If it's too heavy and dramatic for its whole runtime, that's going to be mournful. But if it's got adventure in it, love, loss, challenge, euphoria, sadness, if it's got all of that in it, then when I get to the end credits, I can sit back as the cast and crew and all the names that were playing a role role and I'm in my last moments as the curtains drop I can give a round of applause and say hey you know what that movie had everything it has to have learning and growth yeah so even through the tough times there is learning and growth and it's like a question without an answer it's pointless so it the answer to why did that happen to me it might not you might not get it straight away it might take five years of hindsight mm. but it's learning and growth Mm. Okay, I learnt from that, and that helped me now to deal with. So, the things that do question you, you've got to understand. You might not get the answers yet, but understand they're coming, mm. and they're all important. They're all valuable. 
understand. You're, um, you're third generation now in the park. Absolutely, yeah. And maybe we can just touch on that for just a little while because uh, I think that's a fascinating thing and it's a rare thing. I spoke recently in the series with Jolene Hill. She's mm -hmm. also third generation. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm third generation. So can we just unpack the fact that you're third generation working across these parks? How does that work? How did it happen? Yeah. When I got the job as a dolphin trainer up here, my father, who was a career police officer in New South Wales. We should mention you were also a police I officer a, for a period after a, Warner Brothers Movie, movie World. I went from the police academy stunt show to the real police academy. Yes. And then that in itself was surreal. <laughs> we could we could move into that space, but we might slightly get away from the <laughs> from the thread. But you graduated, and correct me if I'm wrong, there was a, a, a recognition of honour there yeah, as Queensland well. Queensland Police Leadership Award. Yeah, I've still got that at home. Crazy. And, and and up at Oxley Academy, my name will always be. Yeah. 2009 on that that plaque. I know we could go there, mm. uh, which is obviously not what uh, what we're here for. But that <laughs> that is fascinating. So you you're the second generation police officer as well or was yes. or was your dad's dad also no he was in the army in World War okay. II. but dad dad was a police officer and when he retired he moved up here because yeah. he'd been coming up so much and seeing the way of life so they sold up and moved up here and dad said I still want to work but I don't know what I want to do he retired from the police and I said I'll get you a job here as a cleaner so dad came in and was a cleaner and used to watch the shows and I'd see him walking around the park and he loved fishing so if he scooped up some food he'd He'd go and throw it in the lake and watch the fish eat it. He loved, was fascinated with the fish in the lake, and you know he's he loved it here. And I, I don't know anybody that doesn't. But um, and he had days off, and when you when you were working at Warner Brothers Movie One, we should just mention mm -hmm. it was not uncommon for him to come in and sit and watch the Police Academy show. He used to get the bus and come in nearly yeah. every day yeah. and sit and watch. And he'd say to the stuntman, "I guess this is the closest I'll ever get to see him in uniform." Wow. So I knew he wanted me to be a police yeah, officer from yeah. a very early age. He wanted his yeah. boy to be one. But I had an adventure to live. Yeah. I got all this other stuff. Was but he did way. get to get that. He got to see it. He got to meet the police commissioner. Because <laughs> I met the police commissioner. He saw me get the leadership award and I introduced him to the then police commissioner. That's fantastic. And he had tears in his eyes. It was yeah. a great moment for us both. It was great. How many years family. was he a cleaner at SeaWorld? I think he did about three or four years here. Yeah. And, then, and uh, About three years. And then I just think he thought, okay, like he's getting, it was, you know, time to, to stop and just fish and enjoy himself. It must have been great to walk around the park and see, well, there's dad, dad. Yeah. you know, and this is where it all began for me. Yeah. And in the chapters of his working life coming to an end, he's here, which yeah. is a great moment, yeah. a great thing. And the, the pride he felt being here and yeah. seeing me and thinking, wow. And I talked to him years later and he said, um, seeing you up here doing that. He said, I, I was so proud. I didn't think you were telling the truth. I didn't think it was real. <laughs> right. And then coming up and seeing you doing this and yeah. seeing you doing shows and hearing you on the microphone and the crowd laughing. And, and then again at Police Academy, nearly every day he'd come, he'd laugh at the same old jokes. Yeah. He'd love it. The cast, the crew, everybody knew him. Um, we'd sit and have lunch in between shows. And, and uh, he loved it. He loved, he was really proud. He yeah. was really proud, which is what I am now because my son's just started here pre-Christmas in food and beverage, and I've got so many great memories of SeaWorld, and now that I'm, I'm back here, and I imagine we'll get to that, but um, looking up and seeing my son walking through the park and, and, and you know, on the ice cream stand and him smiling, coming home, saying, oh, Dad, the dolphins were right behind me today, and 
saw a seal today. It was so big. And yeah. Should have heard it when it made it. They're just seeing the excitement of him. And yeah. I, I always remind him, don't take it for granted. Yeah. We are extremely lucky to work in such a beautiful place. And this yeah. is his first job out of school. Yeah. I feel sorry for him. Because ultimately, if he does go somewhere else, he's always going to miss this. That's right. Yeah. If he does, he might stay here and, and like yourself, and, have a great career. Yeah, and grow. Mm. Yeah. What, um, now that you're back and in the role that you're in, how do you, what, it's a question I ask everybody, what gets you up in the morning? And you're getting up early. You're doing some really early starts. Sometimes 3.30 starts. <laughs> big to, starts. Because of where I live <laughs> and then to be here for a five o'clock start. Is, sometimes I'm with the cleaning crew now. Um, when I left Movie World, I went into the police and then, then there was another couple of jobs there. And the interesting thing about that too was leaving essentially a fun industry, yeah. theme parks. People come and laugh and clap, smile, leave, wow. The extreme of working in the Queensland Police Service, there's not much fun about that. Sure. That was a real wake up for me, a real test for me personally okay. to deal with that. Mm. And then work at another job and then during COVID, when it, uh, the world fell apart, we, I think we all took stock of ourselves. Mm. What's important? What are we doing? Mm. Do we really want and need the things we have around us? And I wrote, I sat down and I wrote, where do I want to work? Mm. What do I really want? Mm. And I wrote three things. I wanted to be outdoors because I love being outdoors. I didn't want to be in an office. I wanted to be around happy people and something to, something to do with the ocean. Mm. And then in my head, I thought animals. And I looked at this list and went, that's SeaWorld. Mm. You just write, just write SeaWorld. I want to go back to SeaWorld. And I realized I did. I had 10 years at Movie World, six years here at SeaWorld. Without a doubt, the greatest years of my life mm. with the greatest experiences. And I thought, what am I doing? Go back. So I happened to notice on the website they needed cleaners post-COVID, and, and which was understand. We're putting in big hours. They're a great crew that I work with, incredible tight bunch of people who, who help and support each other um, and I've come back into the park not as an animal trainer and not as a performer as a cleaner I feel um, privileged to be doing it I've had people come up to me while I'm cleaning railings and stuff thank you for protecting us not a problem mm. uh, this morning like I, this happens every day when I, the carousel pre we start up the brass poles have to be shiny I make them that shiny, it's not funny. I, I sweat doing it because I know. And then the first day I did it, the person teaching me said, it's a tough job, it's a hard job, it's a bit it's a bit boring. And I said, no, because my daughters had come and ridden that carousel. I got photos of them on the horses, beautiful photos. And I said to that person training me, you've got to realise that today a child's going to come in here and see this carousel with its lights, with the horses, with the colours, with the music and these shiny brass poles. To that child, this is a wonderland. And we're helping with the electricians and the tech guys and the op staff. We're helping that child just go, wow, look at this place. Yeah. I love being a part of that. And that person had never looked at it that way before. Yeah. And it was my second day. Yeah. So I, I still thrive. What gets me up is coming to this place. It's Even when I was a performer and a dolphin trainer and at both parks, I always said the heroes of this park are the cleaners and the gardeners. Yeah. And SeaWorld has a look about it that is just spectacular. Walking through those gates, it's immaculate. The gardens are immaculate. You've got the broad water, the water, the pelicans flying overhead, the animals all around you. It, I smile every day. I, mm. I cannot wait to get to work. Mm. I love it here. Absolutely love it. If you look back 
and it's probably hard to single out one moment. Is there a moment that resonates with you as one of the proudest that you, you can kind of lean into, that you can kind of imagine it stands above most other memories? Well, the number one, even though it's not that, I, we'll talk about the theme parks, but obviously winning that leadership award with the Queensland Police yeah. was a, a moment that just, of pure shock. Yeah. And in, out of 1,500 crazy people, yeah. um, I got this leadership award and um, I questioned that. Yeah. How did I get that? Yeah. And I spoke to the people, but, but here in the parks, I think, yeah, there are moments very similar to the picture that we spoke about behind you of these three yeah. dolphins yeah. jumping. Those memories of being with those animals and looking up and seeing them, you know, even on a cold, wet, rainy winter's day, you still had the show had to go on. Yeah. I still loved it. I'd go in and think, I got, I'm swimming with dolphins yeah. and they're friends with me. And, and even after shows, I'd still go for a swim and probably things like that. Just incredible pride and incredible appreciation and 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 the awareness and I, I tell my son this I tell when I, I did work at a school I used to tell the students this and it's important to be aware of how I say it blessed how fortunate and how lucky we are yeah and I'll go on a bit of a tangent here but it's important I remember years ago watching a travel documentary and they asked all um, established um, country, developed nations, if they could go anywhere in the world, where would they go? And the number one answer was Australia, but it's too far, it's too expensive. But I've always wanted to go there, I've been fascinated with Australia. If I could, that's where I'd go. So Australia is the number one place in the world. Now, in Australia, the number one tourist destination is the Gold Coast. The Gold Coast is the biggest industrial city in Australia. When you hear that, I first heard that, I thought, Industrial city, I pictured factories and production lines. No, the industry is tourism. The Gold Coast is built on tourism. And yeah, people go to Uluru and the Whitsundays and the, and the Great Barrier Reef and might go shopping in Sydney and Melbourne and Tassie. But the number one destination in Australia for most Australians is the Gold Coast. So we live in the number one country and we live in the number one city in the number one country in the world now. For all the people that live in this city, we all got to work. People work for the council and banks. and We are lucky enough to work at the number one destination that even locals come to on a weekend. See, well, we'll go to see, we'll go to Moobie, the theme parks, the fun parks. We are blessed to be able to work and spend every day in the number one spot, in the number one city, in the number one country, in the world. We're the luckiest people in the world. Well said. And that's a great way to, to finish our time together, mate. You're writing and still writing and directing a really good movie. Thanks, Thank for, thanks for sitting down here on, on Park Life. I hope you enjoyed it. You'll find Park Life on Twitter and me, Michael Croker, on Instagram at Mike underscore Croker. See you next time.